is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to episode 17, Marie Corelli, part two. When we, la- when we left off last time, Corelli's career as a writer was just starting to take off. It was 1885, not 1855 like I accidentally said, and 30-year-old Corelli had just published not one, but two novels, A Romance of Two Worlds and Vendetta. Her fan base at this early moment of her career includes people like Oscar Wilde and the Prince of Wales, and as we mentioned in the last episode, it would pretty quickly expand to include Queen Victoria herself and various European royals. I can see why you made that error, though, because that's the year that she was born yeah. in, so yeah. there's some logic, and she- you never know. She could have been successful from birth. <laughs> in a past life, her her twin soul was already publishing somewhere. Yeah. Um, speaking of something that sounds very much like successful from birth, we hinted at some juicy details. And this is probably a good time to just start this episode by addressing the elephant in the room, which is not birth, but birther. Yes. That was terrible. The elephant is birth. That might be the worst segue I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yes, Bertha. Yes. So last episode we mentioned that um, after Corelli's mother or stepmother or maternal figure passed away, Bertha moved in with the Corelli family. Um, the Van der Vivers lived near the Mackays in London. Um Countess van der Viver was very invested in Marie's um, life. She really liked Marie. Um, um, and basically any biography you read will say that Marie and Bertha were best friends forever. But... Gal pals. Yeah. <laughs> but that's... <laughs> um. That's a little bit of... Not accurate. A, a that's an oversimplification yeah yeah um yeah um because the main biography that we've been we've been looking at a few biographies but the main one we've been referring to as we mentioned is Teresa Ransom's and she basically doesn't uh, doesn't think it's right to assume that Bertha and Marie were lovers um I have a problem with this because it's it's impossible to definitively say, and it's quite easy to overstate or read into relationships of the past and say, and maybe this is um, a romantic relationship rather than a platonic, but Bertha and Marie's relationships reads as marriage in so many ways. And, like, Ransom says there's no evidence they were more than friends. Like, of course, who the hell in the Victorian times is writing down their, like, sexual encounters for posterity? especially non-heterosexual couples yeah there's that one like random guy that had sort of like a a series of of diaries about his sexual exploits (laughs) that's been 
infamously sort of uh, studied uh, in Victorian studies by, um, who was it, Stephen Marcus? I, th- I want to say that. Yeah. That sounds accurate. Yeah. So, yeah, that in itself is an oversimplification. But what I'm trying to say is people either don't write these things down or unless they have quite a bit of privilege to start with, they're going to destroy it or their heirs are going to destroy it after they're dead. So we we don't have details about, like, Charles Dickens' sexual life or someone who was in a committed monogamous relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Like, why would we have this about people who are marginalised in society? Yeah, definitely. Also, we we might talk about this later on. Um, but does anyone call their platonic friend Mamacita? Like, I <laughs> I'm don't pretty think sure. So. <laughs> yeah, not. <laughs> there's no scenario in which that seems platonic to me. <laughs> no. So this is getting a little bit ahead of where we are chronologically, but Jessica Amanda Salmonson writes that um, in the home that Marie and, quote, darling bear, uh, which is what Marie called her in addition to Mamacita, in the the home that they built together later in their life, um, Marie had a fireplace built with a large stone over the mantel uh, into which was engraved birth of vivers and her own initials elaborately intertwined, end quote. So, you know, that's pretty stereotypical uh, sign, or that's a pretty common trope of um, <laughs> Bertha and Marie are <laughs> sitting in a tree, K-A-S-S-I-N-G, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all know what it means when you carve your simple initials together in a heart or intertwine them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have some pretty close friends and I wouldn't, um, yeah, design a fireplace with mine and my best friend's initials intertwined. Yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit overboard for uh, gal pals. <laughs> yeah. Um, Samuelson is also one of the only scholars, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. I've only ever read it. Um, She's one of the only scholars I've come across who unambiguously addresses Corelli's sexuality. She writes, quote, Marie was homosexual. It must be said as bluntly as that because of the poor way in which gay and lesbian history has been reported and the commonality in the past of biographers' efforts to submerge and deny this history. She oftentimes affected to be an actual man-hater, having avowed, quote, such hatred and disgust of the, for the male portion of our species that if a man only touches her by accident, she feels a sense of outrage for days, end quote. Awag noted that Be- Beethoven was the only man she could have loved, quote, because he has the advantage of being dead, end quote. Um, so I think what, what Simonson is getting at is the need for representation. So yeah. there's this tendency to sort of erase any sort of non-normative, non-heteronormative behavior or to explain it away. And she's arguing for the opposite of that to sort of say, you know, we need to be very, I mean, we need to kind of push in the other direction, right? I would only complicate this by saying, um, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, I was just agreeing (laughs) with you. Like, um, we can't only talk about these I can see a certain viewpoint that says we shouldn't be worried about 
you know, um, writers' personal lives. You know, if someone's a really big-time Russian formalist, thinks the author is dead, we don't need to care. In some ways, <laughs> I understand that. I mean, I, I don't because I always have this historian perspective of it's interesting to know the social conditions but that's rarely mm-hmm. applied to as i was saying earlier people in long-time monogamous heterosexual relationships it's only ever seems to come up when we're talking about someone who is outside of that normative viewpoint yeah i mean i think I, I, I get the sort of death of the author like intent doesn't matter but at the same time like it's really kind of convenient air quotes, that, um, you know, that has tended to mean that our canon is white heterosexual men. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of heading off that argument before we come to it of, yes, you could say it doesn't matter, but actually it does because um because it does okay and we're not really making an argument about like her intent in her works no you know like actually she was pretty conservative in a lot of her writing so um but it is important to understand sort of the context in which she lived and worked um and also just to say there's a history of yeah or that i mean that there have always been queer queer writers right they're not sort of like mysterious like they're not unicorns no in the victorian period yeah i will say um to kind of complicate this um and we'll get to this more later in this episode but um, Curly actually might have been bisexual. The, it's that's not a term that would have been in existence back then. But um, as we talked about in the Mary Shelley episode, it was certainly a lived experience that was known and uh, not like mythical at all. Um, yeah, these things existed. And be- I, I think it's sorry. I was just going to say yeah. these things existed yeah. before we invented words to describe them. Like that's why we had to invent words. Yeah, definitely. But um, I think it's important to note that possibility. I think a lot of people want to just claim, oh, no, she was definitely she was definitely lesbian, not into men at all. And I get I get that impulse. But I think it's important to note, because if there's sort of been a dearth of representation of gay and lesbian figures, bisexual, trans, non-binary figures are like even less represented um, and it's important to note that those experiences existed too. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's there's there's no easy sort of label here, but certainly Marie was not um, heteronormative in the way that we define it now. <laughs> let's just yeah, let's just leave it there. I yeah, because there is this tendency if anyone in the past is seen to have had a relationship with someone of the same gender or i mean obviously it's not very well recognized that they're non-binary or agender but if they're seen to be anything but cishet everyone goes oh they're gay like um freddie yeah. mercury was bi that seems to be a like yeah a lot of people don't seem to know that that's my i keep a uh, little ledger in my head of famous bisexual people because why not <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, like David Bowie, right? Yeah. Like so many of these people who you're like, oh, well, they weren't straight, so they have to have been gay or, you know, in the traditional gay and lesbian, because I know a lot of bisexual people might say gay as a byword for that. <laughs> Pun not intended mm-hmm. in byword. Oh, dear. 
<laughs> We're off to a great start pun-wise today. Yeah, and um, Les, I see what um, Summonson is saying. Yeah, with saying you should acknowledge that. And um, I just want to problematize the um, idea that because she was affected to be an actual man-hater, she must have not been attracted to any men because there's an unfortunately bisexual man-hater who... Yeah, they're awful sometimes. And sometimes I would say, <laughs> if a man touched me, I would be outraged for days, unfortunately. Some of them are quite nice and good looking. Yeah, well, you know, I'm straight, but I also tend to hate most men. So, <laughs> or not hate, but like definitely if they touch me, I'm going to be very angry. Like, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, I, I do see where she's going with that, but maybe we can say she wasn't straight because she had a long time at girlfriend rather than, or female partner rather than because she didn't like yeah. men. Yeah, definitely. To sum up this, this little ranting portion, um, Marie Corelli liked ladies, <laughs> especially Bertha van der Feiver. Um, or at least she liked Bertha, if, if none other. Um, yeah. Yes. I kind of put the birth a bit up top because I thought it was important before we uh, carried on just to step out of the chronological framework for a second and talk about Bertha in one solid block because you can't really bring yeah. her up without going in depth. Yeah, we danced around it last time. but Yeah, so if we move back to 1886 and the kind of cr- taking back up the chronological framework... Yeah, um, so to clarify, um, Corelli wrote Romance of Two Worlds in 1885 um, and sold it in 1885, but it didn't appear until 86, and I think in the last episode, um, I misspoke and said that it appeared in 1885. But um, So 1886 is when Romance of Two Worlds is published. Um, this is the book that sort of gets her a foothold, but Vendetta, her second novel is the one that really gets people's attention. So she's starting to become something of a minor celebrity. Um, she's also frantically writing because, if you remember, her brother Eric is leeching off her like a horrible person. The worst. Um, and she's just frantically trying to fund his... Uh, devil-may-care lifestyle, <laughs> I guess. Um, so her third book comes out in 1887. It's called Thelma. Um, and you had something to say about that, Eleanor. She, yes. she invented the name Thelma? Yeah. Yeah, she invented the name Thelma in this book, and then I was um, going on my little brain tangents that I like to and thinking okay so we've got um we've got Corelli to thank for in part for Thelma and Louise but also it seems like at the time Thelma became a really popular name so I was thinking it's kind of like um kind of like how in 2015 2016 you get a whole load of Khaleesi's or Arias it's the original yeah. like pop um popular culture name Yeah, uh, Corelli is an interesting figure because she is one of the first, like, major um, pop culture sort of movers and shakers in this way. A lot of people argue that she is the first 
um, bestseller by modern standards, which means um, a bestseller could have meant any number of things in the 19th century, but by modern standards, it means like that she sold, I think, I think she sold out her first, she sold like, and this doesn't happen. She doesn't actually hit bestseller until I want to say the sorrows of Satan, but it might've been the novel before that. But um, I think she sold out of like a 50,000 run edition in like two weeks or something like that. Um, her sales were ridiculously huge, especially because, as I mentioned last episode, or especially in the context of the fact that she really sort of pushed the envelope of what was considered um, a standard operating procedure in publishing at the time. She's just wildly popular and she's, yeah, it's the... Um, I think that is a good frame to think about it in the kind of Game of Thrones... Harry Potter phenomenon that's the kind of way she's selling like if she was alive today there would absolutely be HBO series based on her books or films um Mm -hmm. because also they're really exciting so in 1887 when Thelma comes out uh Corelli also gets to meet Oscar Wilde in person for the first time this will not be the only celebrity she gets chummy with over the course of her career Um, And if you remember, he wrote sort of a fan letter to her after The Romance of Two Worlds comes out. Um, So this is not long after that. Yeah, by far not the the first famous fan. Um, The next kind of major figure that she brushes up against is... um, in 1889, she uh, gets the attention of once and future Prime Minister Gladstones, um, who has received a copy of Ardath. Um, well, actually, Corelli sent it to him. Um, and he really loves it, so he tries to visit, but she's not at home at the time um, and is really sad about it. So she writes him a letter saying, please visit again um and he will but we'll yeah, put a pin back. in that for now yeah but he will be the prime minister again um in, from 1892 to 94 so uh yeah he's not finished yet yeah no uh that same year the queen of italy sends a signed photo to corelli and asks for a free book Everyone wants free books from her, especially the rich people who can pay for them, as <laughs> Eleanor noted last time. <laughs> yeah, I was just ready to launch into another rant about, like, monarchy, buy your own books. Right. Um. Yeah, and then we get to a, a slightly sad point in Corelli's life. So, McKay, her possibly father whatever relation he is has been getting more and more ill and he's essentially bedridden um until he dies on christmas eve of 1889 so and the funeral is held on the 2nd of january 1890 and if you think that's a really long time um i can i'm gonna put some uh links to things about victorian 
death practices in the show notes, but um, really, that's not a long time. Um, Part of mourning in the 19th century involved spending time with the body, preparing it for the funeral, holding a wake, those sorts of things. There was this deeper connection um, to death and burial in the 19th century. So um, totally not a long time. Yeah, I would have been kind of smelly, but also it was winter, so it's not that bad. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. It's more mercy, isn't it, being winter? Also, I feel like the uh, – having the holiday season would push it back anyway so yeah yeah um victoria doesn't go to the funeral but she does send her and obviously it's um we'll probably talk about it but it's not common for women to go to funerals anyway Mm. um or is it at this point because i know earlier in the century it's basically women don't go i feel like at this point it is not as uncommon um because yeah, post post Prince Albert's death. Yeah, you know, that's I when Victorian mourning really. Really, everyone. Get- yeah, I think I'm confusing myself by thinking back to the bit in Gaskell's North and South, where anyway, yeah, the, yeah. she can't go to her. I think it's her dad's funeral. <laughs> um, that's the forties. So. That is a complete aside. Yeah, yeah, that's way earlier. Um, anyway, Victoria isn't able to make it to the funeral, but she does send her condolences. And Marie makes a choice that I think is kind of interesting when we think about her kind of self-framing, because she she sends um, so she sends Blackwood, the publisher, the last poem that McKay ever wrote, and she specifically says she has chosen to send it to Blackwood to honour McKay's Scottish identity. And then also, she refuses to take any money for this poem, which is um, not necessarily out of character for Marie, but possibly Mm -hmm. with Eric on her back. It's unusual. Um, And she also, she signs this letter, Minnie McKay. Yeah. Um, And that's the last time she'll use that name. Yeah. So the letter where she sends the poem is the last ever time that she calls herself Minnie. I might have mentioned this last time. This is another thing that Ransom does in her biography that I'm not super keen on is calls her Minnie throughout, which mm-hmm. A, I can kind of understand why we, um, why you feel close to someone when you're writing a biography of them and start referring to them in with nicknames, but also you, you don't know her, but also there's this real sense that her life is compartmentalised into the Minnie era when McKay's alive and then it's always Marie and that's how she signs her own name. So it feels kind of illogical to refer to her as Minnie when she never calls herself that again. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So McKay wisely leaves everything to Marie. Um, he doesn't have that much. He's got 2,718 pounds, six shillings, nine pence which I did not look up in today's money, actually. That has a relative value in 2018, because measuring worth doesn't um, only goes up to the most recent year, mm-hmm. which is 
still incredible. Um, but apparently the real, kind of the real worth of that is £293,900 in 2018. So still well, quite a lot then. I'm just, I'm confused why, if that's the case, why uh, Marie's been having to, like, put her nose to the grindstone so hard, and why it seems like McKay wasn't able to provide for the family that well. I think, I think he left a lot of things to her, including debts. Okay. So, so you're, from what I remember, she doesn't just inherit... Yeah, she doesn't just inherit this money. She also inherits a whole load of debts. And obviously, our good pal Eric is also still racking up some debts. Yeah. And also not making the most out of whatever he earns. So, yes, everything's left to Marie and Eric's left out of this will. And that seems like a great thing. But actually, it kind of cements this position as an albatross around Marie's neck. Because now he has nothing and he's going, oh, Murray, you got everything from dad. That's... Yeah, now he has pay for me. guilt on his side in addition to just her irrational desire to support him. This is going to crop up again later, not so much with Eric, although Eric continues to be a problem, but it's sort of a pattern for Murray. Um, so frustrating from the, like, privileged position of hindsight and not being involved with it at all. <laughs> I'm sure it was frustrating from her position, too. But, um, and yeah. maybe, like, Bertha is just, you know, kind of watching from the sidelines a little bit, going, come on! <laughs> just cut him off! Oh, man, I can't imagine being Bertha. She must have been so... Ugh. Isn't she left alone with Eric at one point? And I'm like, I'm amazed at Bertha's self-restraint that she didn't... Murder him. The same murder Eric, but... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I am going to say that. So Marie um, is pretty overwhelmed by McKay's death. Um, some sources say she doesn't leave her bed for three weeks after he dies um, and doesn't really kind of rouse herself until uh, she needs to meet with the lawyers. And in addition to sort of finding out she's inherited everything, this is a moment when she potentially learns some shocking news about herself. Uh, so if we are to believe all of the sort of halfway half-baked clues that are kind of left in the record this might be the first time that she learns that she's possibly illegitimate so i have um i have a good friend joe who is working on murray corelli and i had a we're going to have her on for basically a conversation where she puts right everything that we've got wrong hopefully <laughs> um but she has a really interesting theory about marie's parentage and what she finds out which is and i hope she won't mind me kind of rehashing her theory on her behalf but her theory essentially is that mckay is actually her grandfather and that her yeah her mother is his daughter i believe and i might be wrong in that Interesting. 
Well, that explain would explain why Eric is so much older than her, right? Because he's forty when she's twelve or right? something like that. So that's yeah, a thirty. That's an almost thirty year age gap between siblings. That's possible because you know male yeah. biology, but um, still, that's huge. So yeah, that's fascinating theory. It's not super likely. Yeah. Yeah, when she told me that, it made so much sense. And I've never heard anyone kind of suggest it before. So I'll let her explain it in her own words in a future episode. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Um, So this is super bad timing all round. mm -hmm. Because in 1890, not long after McKay's death, Bertha's mum becomes ill. So that's early 1890, and then Bertha and Corelli both go to Kensington to nurse her until she dies in May of that year. Um, following Countess van der Weyver's death, Bertha, Corelli, and our old friend Eric take a much-needed break. Well, Bertha and Corelli need a break. Eric is just there. And they go to Stratford-upon-Avon for 10 days. Insert fateful music here. <laughs> so, in August of 1890, Bertha and Marie travel to... Okay, I don't know how to pronounce anything. I want to say Clarence. I would guess so. Nope. I think this is potentially a good time to say something that I we talked about in person when I was over there. Okay. Um which is that sometimes we will pronounce things wrong because we've only read things and we haven't heard them said. And selfishly, I think mispronouncing is actually quite an admirable thing because it just means that someone's been reading a lot and not everyone can go out and learn how to pronounce the names of obscure Swiss towns. Yeah, that's true. I have so much anxiety about this. that I mean, it's just kind of ingrained into me to sort of perform perfection, but that's not really fair. I guess part of me does think like, oh, as a as a podcaster, I have a responsibility to sort of like pronounce everything right. And yeah. So best stab, they travel to Clarence near Montreux in Switzerland and they stay throughout the winter um, into 1891. So while they're away... Um, another one of Marie's of Corelli's novels comes out, The Soul of Lilith. And um, I think if you want to start with one, if you if you want to read a Corelli novel and you're not sure where to start, this is one of two recommendations I have. The other being um, The Sorrows of Satan, which I've probably mentioned ridiculous amount of times on this podcast already. But The Soul of Lilith is, um, I think, in a linked universe. Or it's part of the same universe as, um, apologies, so The Soul of Lilith is part of the same universe as um, her first novel, A Romance of Two Worlds. Um, but it's, uh, the plot of it is really fascinating. Um, so it's basically this guy is doing scientific experiments on a woman and the plot is you know, the good guys are trying to save the woman's soul before um, it gets trapped forever at at the beck and call of this mad scientist. So, yeah, sounds really exciting. Yeah, I found this um, 
like on the subject of the soul of Lilith, it's kind of a really interesting illustration of her relationship with Bentley, her publisher at the time. For one thing, she's getting decent money, so she's getting she gets two hundred and fifty pounds up front, and then another two fifty on publication, and then after she sells fifteen hundred, which is clearly this is written as in she's definitely going to get that fifteen hundred, but once those ones sell she gets six shillings for everyone after that so she, yeah she's making decent money mm-hmm. but this is one of those books that's very popular but not very well received potentially um basically marie wants bentley to influence critics to give positive reviews which is something that that publishers would do it was super common to do this practice called puffing which is where a publisher will publish books but also own a periodical and will deliberately place positive reviews of their books in their periodical because why wouldn't you it increases your sales figures yeah but bentley is a very proper and refuses to do this um who says the work has to speak for itself which it doesn't seem to be man. It doesn't seem to manage because the critics are not at all kind. Like yeah. they're mean to the point that Corelli debates suing them. Yes, I mean she had some good reviews, especially early in her career. But most reviews tended to be just kind of like soul-crushingly mean. Um, and. At first, she tries to play the system. I don't know if we address this more explicitly elsewhere, so this is probably a good as time as any. She tries to play the game. She tries to hustle to get herself good reviews. Um, she tries to sort of convince the critics to give her another chance, you know. But they just, like, delight in ripping her apart. Um, partly, partly because she is so popular... There's always sort of been this tension in the literary world, we still see it today, between what's considered popular and what's considered capital L literature, um, or serious literature, or important literature, as if something that's popular can't be important, even though most of the things we consider capital L literature, from Shakespeare to Dickens, were in fact popular and not like highbrow or serious in the way that we take them to be now. Um, it's this really kind of fictional line that we put between works, most often between works um, by women writers who are considered popular but not great and male writers who are considered great mm. and not popular <laughs> conveniently, um, especially yeah. especially in the 19th century. But this still happens today with things like chiclet and romance, which are predominantly written by women especially if the male writer is kind of a fusty old white dude yeah that is always highbrow yeah it's ridiculous anyway so um marie um kind of failing fighting a losing battle with the press uh, starts to sort of take it take her frustrations out in different ways so she trains her uh, yorkshire terrier czar to uh tear up bad reviews on command <laughs> which is adorable <laughs> um and um yeah. 
later in her career, she basically tells her publisher that they are not to send free review copies to the press anymore. If the press is not going to give her a fair chance, she's not going to give them a chance at all. If they want to review it, they have to pay for it like anyone else. And this move basically burned her bridges with the press, but made her even more of a of a kind of hero in the eyes of popular readers or, or of the sort of reading masses of her audience. Um, they were like, heck yes. Um, sort of apart from this ongoing professional battle, uh, during their vacation, Marie gets the chance to hang out with the Prince of Wales in Hamburg. They become pretty good friends to the point where the Prince of Wales sends Corelli, um, after Queen Victoria dies, sends Corelli a personal invitation to his coronation. Um, and one of the books that she writes right around the time he takes the throne um, is basically a fictional imagination of what it must mean to become the king and sort of empathizing with that and also um, giving advice for being a good king. <laughs> She's got uh she's she's got audacity on her side, doesn't she? Yeah, she's got husband. So skip ahead a few years. Um to 1895. Your favorite My favorite Corelli novel comes out, yes. The Sorrows of Satan. Um Yeah, I thought it was. It is, I just forgot to fill in that year. Um so The Sorrows of Satan is this amazing sort of fictionalized retelling of her experience in the publishing world with a sort of Faustian uh, frame tale tacked on. So she, as she often does, writes herself into her novel as this... Um, amazing, pure, and good author named Mavis Clare. By the way, she also invented the name Mavis, apparently. Um, so Thelma and Mavis, if if that's your name, you have Marie Corelli to thank. Um, so this book is sort of her <laughs> uh, ultimate F.U. to the press, to the Victorian press, um, and this is sort of the moment when I think last episode I talked about how she tried to have um, Eric's book of poems puffed or she puffed it herself. Uh, this is the moment when that becomes kind of really ironic because um, this book is sort of an expose of the corruption of the publishing industry in the 1890s. And there are these long kind of screed passages against puffing um, and against the press in general. So it's a very personal <laughs> book, yeah. but um, it's also really great, I think, has kind of overtones of Faust, but also of uh, Frankenstein um, and maybe a little bit of Paradise Lost thrown in there. So there's a, there's a, there's a character who is Satan um, and sort of like Paradise Lost. He's very... Um, 
relatable. <laughs> and in fact, turns out not to be bad. He's just like sort of cursed to tempt people, but he really wants everyone to be good. And it hurts him literally and figuratively when they're not. Um, so it's a fascinating book. I really recommend reading this if it, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how much she's changed her tune, though, from the Soul of Lilith publication and wanting Bentley to puff it. Um, like, yeah, you know, going from someone who is wanting to sue people for bad reviews and pay people for good reviews, um, she's gone to someone who's saying, yeah, just puffing is probably not great. Seems like maybe... Uh, yeah. Maybe Bentley's had a good effect on her or had an effect on her. I'm not going to put a value on yeah. it. Yeah, I think, I mean, so she still throughout her life wants to be recognized in the press and wants yeah. to be reported on correctly. But I think maybe at this point she's given up on ever being fairly reviewed um, and has just decided to sort of burn it all down and walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so skip forward two years. Um, for some ridiculous reason, she has promised Eric that he can be uh, in charge of creating a stage version of The Sorrows of Satan. Um, and he gets a partner in ridiculous villainy. Uh, and they basically create a horrible, horrible stage version. Um, Marie tries to intervene, or Corelli tries to intervene, um, but for some reason her lawyers say basically she's made a verbal contract and she can't do anything, her hands are tied. Um, Eric and his partner decide to revise it, but the, the revised version is even more egregious and offensive to Corelli. Um, needless to say, it's an utter fiasco. And to make matters worse, um, Corelli finds herself uh, in increasingly worse health over the course of this year. So her brother is out there actively, like, trampling on her artistic uh, intellectual property, but also oh. she has got this... Uh, increasingly serious health complaint. Um, like many Victorian women, she's sort of hesitant to see a doctor. Um, that's kind of a hint that this was probably a gynecological issue. Eventually, it gets bad enough that she's persuaded to see first one male doctor and then another for... Um, uh, so she gets one medical opinion and then another. Both of them say she needs surgery, major surgery. Um, but she um, somehow kind of becomes aware of the fact that the doctor that she is thinking about letting give her surgery um, is sort of like really dismissive of her um, concerns and also sort of viewing her as a publicity opportunity. Oh, man. So she puts the brakes on the surgery, um, and then somebody, 
some kind soul recommends a female doctor. And those are kind of unicorns in the 19th century, um, but a female surgeon is recommended to her. So this doctor's name was Mary Charlieb. Um, and actually she was sort of a friend, uh, like, a, or at least an acquaintance. Um, and Marie goes to see her and is immediately reassured that she will be in good hands, um, and that this woman is professional and good at what she does. So she has this major surgery uh, Teresa Ransom seems to think it was a hysterectomy. I haven't seen any other records um, of what it might have been. I think that's the logical conclusion, isn't it? I think that's kind of what. Yeah. Even before I read Ransom saying that's what she thought it was. Um, yeah. I'd kind of assumed from her earlier experiences of medical professionals that that might be what it was. Yeah. Well, and um, Dr. Charlieb was the head of a hospital for women, and she specialized in abdominal and gynecological surgery. So that's a big clue as well. Um, so the surgery was performed on the 29th of December of 1879. 1897? Yep. Thank you. <laughs> it's so easily done. Yeah. Um, which is... Incidentally, the year that Dracula came out, if you need to know um, literary touchstones. I'm just fascinated with 1897 post-dissertation because so much interesting stuff happens in that year. Um, mm. Irrelevant to the current conversation, though. <laughs> um, so after the surgery, Corelli and Bertha go to King's Private Hotel in Brighton, so to the seashore. Um, for three months to convalesce. Um, Dr. Charlie goes with them, or at least visits regularly. That's kind of unclear, uh, to sort of tend to her patient. And um, it's a very, very slow recovery. So Ransom writes, quote, by March 1898, so three months later, Marie was slowly recovering, end quote. <laughs> So she's not even fully convalesced three months later. It's major surgery. At a time when they don't have things like antibiotics, etc. to sort of treat infection or anything like that. Yeah, like, thank God they've got anesthesia and stuff now, but it's still not... Yeah. I mean, they they had anesthesia at that point. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But they did not have, you know... I mean, she was probably yeah. like given laudanum or something for the pain which is highly addictive and bad yeah if not um you know some very unregulated morphine yeah no i, w I was saying thank god um, they at least have anesthesia so they're uh yeah there are uh, there's progress but not as far as you'd like yeah but at least she found a trustworthy doctor who was yeah. not using her as a publicity stunt interesting how she had to go to a woman for that <laughs> yeah um so a bunch of sort of publications happen in between or like later in that year 
one of which includes The Mighty Adam. Um, some of Eric's, a book of Eric's poems comes out too, um, because of a deal that she had made a couple of years previously to publish a book with someone if they would also publish one of her brother's books. Um, and yeah, so oh. that's a good reminder of how far out of her way Corelli went to sort of make her brother's life better and sets you up perfectly for the next point. <laughs> yes, this is... Corelli probably thought this was bad news, but I'm going to say this is entirely good news. I don't relish this happening, but also on June 2nd, 1898, Eric dies. Woohoo, he's gone. <laughs> this is not like weighing Corelli yeah. down anymore. Well. In the wake of his death, she goes through his papers, as one does when a relative dies, finds out that for years and years he's been spreading nasty rumors about her and cheating her of money and basically like doing everything he can to just make her life horrible yeah i cannot stress enough how much this um, dude sucks like the worst if we thought he was a garbage person when he was just freeloading like now oof oof it also brings he's truly the villain of the piece like it makes no sense that he's spreading all these rumors about her because he makes his money like he gets all his money from her surely it's in his best interest for her to have a good reputation and therefore sell more books not to i don't know yeah I think if you like, if you are writing a novel and you wrote a character who acts exactly as Eric McKay acts, people would be like, "Oh no, you can't have a character who's that just like unilaterally evil or awful." Right. Just uh, go on record as saying I don't like this guy, which I don't think I did before. Oh no! no. <laughs> Didn't mention at all. I also can't imagine how hard that was for her. Like, her brother dies, and then she goes through all of his stuff, and she thinks they've had a decent enough relationship, and then finds out what he's been doing. Yeah. So one of the rumors I think he he may have been responsible for spreading was... So she's she's getting really popular, if not with the press, then with the public. And this rumor gets out that she's about to publish a book called The Sins of Christ, which um totally not on brand for her for one thing but also like people were heckin scandalized um because you just don't go after no <laughs> Jesus back then um it's not not okay if you want to like keep your reputation intact um so yeah in the aftermath of Eric's death and finding all of this out um she her first impulse is to basically write and have published this sort of, like, disowning sort of expose of what Eric had been doing. Um, that would probably not have gone over well. Um, and some of her close friends talked her down. Yeah, I can see where it came from, but yeah. 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 She's like, puts together this pamphlet of, like, why my brother is the worst human ever. <laughs> um, and it's, she actually does have it printed, but before it gets distributed, her friends are like, yeah, you don't want to, you don't, he's not worth tanking your career over. Yeah, maybe Because the thing not. is like, 
things can be for lots of things can be forgiven, but it's harder as a as a woman writer to be forgiven, especially if you're acting in a way that's considered quote unwomanly and turning on your family as like number one of like you you cannot do this. Yeah. Um so as far as I know, all of those pamphlets were destroyed. Um and it's kinda like yeah. it sucks but the damage is done. Yeah. Yeah. The best thing you can do. And we actually have learned this in the modern in the world of the modern news cycle. The best thing you can do with a hater is ignore them, not give them more bandwidth, right? So basically, like, London is just feeling way too cruel and horrible to Corelli at this point. Um, She needs a change. She's still feeling really vulnerable after her major surgery um, and her brother's death and betrayal. Um, So Bertha suggests that they move to this little town that they visited a few years earlier, Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, they move into this rental house. I feel like someone else famous might be related with that town, but I can't think who. <laughs> yeah, 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 who Who could it be? Who could it be? The second best writer to come out of Warwickshire after George Eliot. <laughs> I'm happy to go on record with that. It's Shakespeare, just in case anyone... Just FYI, Shakespeare is actually going to be a huge, uh, huge for the rest of this episode, huge part of this episode. Um, so they move into a rental house called Hall's Croft, because if you know anything about the Victorians, it's that they gave their houses names. Um, I also have given my house a name. It's called Bat Hollow um, because I'm a proper Victorianist. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. So the situation is sort of like um, Airbnb or a sabbatical home situation where they rent this house while the current owner is traveling or staying elsewhere. Um, And so they're living there. She's not living there. They get really fond of it. They're there for quite a few months. Um, They decide they want to put down roots in Stratford and offer to buy the house. But the owner doesn't want to sell, which why should she? Right. Yeah. So they start looking for other places to live because soon the owner's going to come home and kick them out. And um, and as Nick Birch, the um, creator of the Marie Corelli website that we keep pointing you to, as he notes, um, quote, in September they moved to the Dower House, then called Avon Croft, a few doors down the street, and stay through 1900 while they look for a suitable property, end quote. And they look at a lot of homes. Um, so Stratford's on the river, Avon, which is why the long hyphenated name. Um, and in the 19th century, people were really worried about living in damp places and what it can do to your health. So a lot of the homes they look at are rejected because they're too close to the river. Um, in 1900, she F- Crowley finally finds a house that meets some if not all of the items on her wish list um and it's called mason croft and she and bertha will live in this home for the rest of their lives they they initially lease it for 18 months but um during that time they decide that they want to buy it um 
Also in this turn of the century year, Corelli decides to ingratiate herself with her new townsfolk by um, throwing a series of sort of um, events for local children at the Memorial Theater. Um, And I don't think we need to go into too much detail about that, except that she kind of negotiated with the people who were in charge of the Memorial Theater. Uh, They didn't think kids should be allowed to be there. Um, But she made it happen for two different groups of school children. And then she also threw a party um, somewhere else for a younger group of children who were deemed much too young to have an outing to the theater. Um, But she gave them all Christmas presents and they sang songs together and... Um, everybody really liked her at this time, or mostly everybody really liked her. But sadly, that wouldn't last. Theatre's status, obviously, now it's looked at as more highbrow than, for example, staying in and watching telly, but it's had quite a contested status for most of its history. And at the beginning of 19th century, it's definitely not an a pastime for women to go to the theatre and that kind of relents towards the end so obviously we're into the early 1900s now but it's still not really seen as an appropriate place for children it's quite cool that she's bringing children to the theatre yes definitely um at around this time um in 1901 she gets several requests um for lectures so um The Philosophical Society of Edinburgh, for example, asks her to come and give a lecture. And I think uh, Ransom notes that um, the the last author that they had asked to give a lecture was Charles Dickens. So that's a huge honor. And there are several more uh, lecturing events that she um, participates in in that year. So this is really a high watermark of her career. Not only is she popular, but these sort of learned societies want her to come and talk to them about literature or about social problems that she sees. Um, In one talk, she actually, in the talk she gives at the Philosophical Society of Edinburgh, she speaks about sort of the imagination and um, the need for sort of quiet and calm and reflective times in your life to really achieve this high state of imagination and how the modern world is making that more and more impossible, the sort of hustle and bustle, um, which if any of you kind of keep up with conversations about technology today, that's a really familiar refrain. Um, she she really believes you need sort of these down times and these quiet walks and um a lot of just time to think and be and and not be kind of hustling. Um, This is the year that she also hires a personal secretary. I think she's had them briefly in the past, but this secretary is important as she'll be sort of a long-term secretary. Her name is Annie Davis. Um, And basically, uh, Annie Davis... And not only kind of handles correspondence for Corelli, but also dictates her novels from this point on, basically. Um, So an important figure in the continued success of Corelli. 
And I think for today, we're going to need to stop here because we have a lot more to cover in Corelli's long and eventful life. Um, so we'll be back with part three very soon. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives.